Amen. Good morning, church. We're glad you're here this morning. It's a blessing to be with you and a part. If you're online with us, we are glad that you are here with us. If you are here, it's glad to see your eyeballs and see your beautiful faces this morning. I know that we have a lot going on in our world, and that is why we must go to the Word of God for the answers. Amen? Amen. The truth of the Word of God speaks into every single situation, into every single circumstance that we find ourselves in life. And we must go to the Word of God, which is able to strengthen us to be able to be ready for the battle. And so this morning, we are going to turn to Ephesians 6. We finish our series in the book of Ephesians, the gospel in life. The the gospel itself is more alive than ever in our world. It is the answer to injustice. It is the answer to brokenness. It is the answer to change. The gospel is that which radically transforms man from self-centered, egotistical, individualistic to others-centered, humble, and willing to set aside our own desires for the good of others. We've seen in the book of Ephesians The gospel transforms every single area of our life, our marriage, our family, our workplace, our environments in which we find ourselves in. It transforms husbands being willing to lay down their life for their wife, a wife who respects her husband, not only not because he is good, but because she respects Christ. A child willing to obey their parents. A parent willing to sacrificially love their child and discipline their child. A boss who is willing to serve his employees. An employee willing to serve their boss with a heart of joy. This is what the gospel does in the transformation process. This transformation only happens... When the Spirit of God comes to dwell amongst His people. Ephesians 2.22 says this, In Him, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Last week, Chris accurately described that we are at war. We are in a war, a battle, and the battle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against people. But the war that is, that is being waged is against an enemy ever since Satan entered into the Garden of Eden. He began to tempt mankind to rebel against God and against his word. Remember Satan's scheme in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3? His scheme is the same as it was back then as it is today. To try to get people of God to doubt God the character, the nature, the goodness of God, and to doubt his word as true. You remember what he said in the garden? Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? You see, Satan operates in this system we call the world. Paul talks about this system in which Satan is the prince or the power of the air. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we have 
All once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, what that passage tells us in Ephesians 2, that we were once against God, enemies of God. We fought with Satan. Now that we have put on Christ, we face that enemy. And the enemy wages war. He wages war against our flesh or our human desires, that which is inside of us. Satan himself, which is outside in the demonic realm in which we cannot see. And he has set up this system in which we call the world. Satan controls the unregenerate people and have developed chaos and sin. And this is why the church exists. This is why the people of God exist to advance the gospel. With the gospel of peace, bringing people who are against God, angry at God, into peace with God as the church standing side by side with one another. This is why the battle is not against flesh and blood, because we don't fight the people. We fight what is behind, what is veiling people from seeing the light of the gospel. Ephesians six thirteen. if you'll turn with me there, we'll read that passage as we see the armor of God displayed before us. If you'll stand with us in the reading of the word of God, we can go from there this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand. Therefore, having fashioned on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, we thank you that you are able to overcome the enemy. Father, we cling to the gospel of truth in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, as we put on Christ. Father, we we see all of the things going on in our world. We see all of the different things that are happening. And yet, Father, we ask during this time that you would speak directly through your Spirit by the Word of God, that we would be able to withstand any temptations that come our way, any fears that speak untruth into our hearts and our minds, and that we would counter that with the truth of the Word of God. Father, we pray that you would advance the kingdom of God this morning. We pray that you would repair and restore and revive us again as hearts of people. And Father, give us the peace that we need that only comes through the gospel of grace. 
Father, we ask all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1864, a physician named Ignaz Semmelweis stumbled upon a theory we now call the germ theory. We've probably been accustomed to germs lately, some of us, right? In those days, everyone thought, this is 1864, not too long ago, everyone thought diseases would spontaneously generate in the body because there was something wrong with the body, like having too much blood or getting too hot or something like that. And so doctors would actually go between patients with ev- without ever washing their hands. That's a de- definite no-no in today's world. Plus, it was believed that in those days that a gentleman's hands didn't need washing <laughs> because they were clean. And so doctors would go from working on a corpse of a dead person to delivering a baby. And this is why death rates in hospitals were so incredibly high. Semmelweis began to suspect that they were carrying diseases with them in small particles invisible to the human eye. He didn't know what to call them, so he called them microbes, literally little pieces of flesh. It seems so obvious to us now, but nobody in those days thought that way. He tested his theory by just having interns who washed their hands with a little chlorine before delivering babies and found the mortality rates went dramatically down. But even then, the doctors wouldn't accept his theory Because the idea that all this destruction was caused by something that you could not see just was unbelievable to them. At a famous conference, he pleaded with his fellow doctors, gentlemen, for God's sake, please just wash your hands. But nobody listened for about two decades until Louis Pasteur came along. Even his own wife did not believe him. He would later die in an asylum. Paul gives us the illustration here that the battle that we cannot see is real. Even though we can't see this battle being waged, it is being waged for the souls and the hearts of mankind. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Paul calls the church to stand armed with the gospel, protecting themselves from the attack of the enemy on themselves And the person standing next to them, or the person, in your case, sitting next to you. Here, this morning, from the Word of God, we must put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Church, we must stand up and be the church. Verse 13 says right here, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the bells of truth, We can see here in 13 and 14 the the call for the church, the people of God, the Ephesian church to us at Northwest to stand. This is our first point this morning. We must stand in the battle or amidst the battle. We must stand in the battle. It is interesting Paul uses the term here, stand. He could use the term fight. He could use the term attack. He could use the term 
sit down. But he uses the term stand. The, the term here is the illustration or the thought of resisting or holding the line. The enemy wants to only attack the weakest part of your life. Not only the weakest part of your life, but every area of your life. That's why Paul calls you to put on the whole armor of God. The enemy wants to get in any crevice that he can so that you may fall and not be standing. That you are vulnerable. That you are unable to resist in the battle. Think about a soldier. The last place that he wants to be is on the ground. Why? Because the enemy will come and crush him on top of him. James 4, 7 is this thought process. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, this standing is not only a personal stance, but it is in the context of the church as a whole. Standing side by side, locked together in unity. You'll notice here in a minute, there is no back armor. There is no armor to protect your six. And why is that? It's because I got your six. Why is that? Because this person has got my six. We must stand together. Philippians 1, 27 and 28 gives this thought process of standing side by side, firm in one spirit, in unity as the church, the believers of God. It says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. For the faith of the gospel and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is also why when the enemy does cause someone in the church or cause someone in your community group or cause someone in your inner circle to fall. It is the job of the church, the people of God to restore them because once sin has entered into the camp, it is devastating for the whole body of Christ. If our role here is just to stand then who will fight the battle for us? If our job is to resist the enemy, who will advance the gospel for us? It is Christ himself throughout the scripture and throughout the word of God. The Lord himself is a warrior. Exodus 14, 14, it says this, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. Deuteronomy 1.30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. This is what Jesus did. He fought for us against sin and death on the cross, dying for us, declaring victory for us. And this is what he does in the life of people. We are armed with the gospel and Christ comes with the spirit of God that lives inside of us and he advances the gospel. He unveils their eyes to see the truth of the gospel and allows people to come to Christ. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord advances like a warrior. He stirs up his zeal like a soldier. He shouts, he roars aloud, he prevails over his enemies. 
Church, if we, if we decide that we're going to take the hill without the Lord going before us, guess what? We will fail every single time. But Paul reminds us that the Christian life is not easy. Did you think that the Christian life was going to be easy? Did you sign up for cupcakes and rainbows? We are in a battle. As long as we are on this earth and Lord allows us to have breath in our lungs, we will be fighting against the enemy. All of our days as believers, we will fight for our family. We will fight for our children. We will fight with the truth of the gospel armed in every single part of our life. Are you prepared for the battle? Have you prepared your wife for the battle? Have you prepared your children for the battle? Have you prepared your grandchildren for the battle? Have you prepared your husband for the battle that they will wage every single day? Verse 14 says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness as for shoes your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is our second point this morning. And obviously we could probably preach this in in a sermon series of six to seven different sermons and we're going to try and boil it down into one, but it is this, put on Christ. Put on Christ. Remember Paul is telling us at the beginning of this section in verse 10, finally. That's what he says, finally. This is, this is a summary of the book. Paul is not addressing new things here. He is summarizing everything that he has already said in the book of Ephesians. He's calling the church to be the church, to place the gospel in every area of their life. This is not some exercise in demonic protection. This is not analyzing some, some, some way that you put on some amulets to protect you against demonic forces. No, this is putting the gospel in every single area of your life. And he illustrates that by using the soldier. Apply the gospel to your life. Let's look at the first one, the belt of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth, the truth of the word of God from the gospel, which is Christ. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 20. He's talking about... Do not walk as the Gentiles do. And then he says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him, that you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The truth is in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now going back to the illustration here, most soldiers wore a large square piece of material that they would cut holes in the, the head and for arms. So think, think of like a sheet coming down, baggy, and all of those things. Drape loosely over the soldier's body. Have you ever tried to play basketball or any sport for that matter in a trench coat? That's what it's like. You're waving around. You got this thing moving. You can't really move that well. 
I guess that's why they went to the shorter shorts for the basketball players. When I played, they were below the knee. Anything above the knee was considered a no-no. Now it's like, whoa, those are way short, way too short. I'm getting old. But for that matter, so they had this belt to tuck in their tunic by tucking in their tunic. They didn't have it waving around. It wasn't bothering them in the battle. They could move quickly. They could respond quickly. They were ready for the battle. Guess what, church? To be ready for the battle, you've got to put on Christ. You've got to know Christ. You've got to understand that he is the truth, and you've got to know the gospel. The Old Testament refers to the belt on the Messiah, the messianic warrior. And this is what Paul gets it from, from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The messianic warrior who carries on his mission, he fights the enemies. Christ actually gives us his belt that we can put on as he advances the gospel and we stand behind him and resist the arrows of the enemy. Here we go. Number two, breastplate of righteousness. In ancient Jewish thought, the heart represented the mind and the will, and the bowels here were the seat of emotions and feelings. Again, this is the place where you do not want to get struck. The vital organs of the body. We can lose an arm, but we can't lose our hearts. Is where the enemy attacks the hardest with his set of desires for the world, the things of the world. And these desires rage against our body or our flesh. And yet again, the Lord asks us to put on Christ again as he is the warrior in Isaiah 59, 17. It says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So what do we put on? We put on the righteousness of Christ. We, we are declared righteous. Why? Because Christ paid for our sin on the cross. Did you know we actually protect ourselves from the desires of the world by rejecting those desires? It's kind of a cycle here. It's a circular motion. The more that we put on Christ, the more that we reject the desires of the world, the stronger the armor gets. Why? Because we are filled with the spirit of the living God. So if we can put this in our mind, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what does this mean? That means that we are declared righteous because Christ took our sin, Jesus in my place. And thus, because we are declared righteous, we walk in that righteousness. We are now a new creation walking in the manner worthy of our calling. This is nothing new. Paul has already said it in Ephesians 4, 24, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is he saying here? Display the glory of God. Be who God has designed and created you to be in Christ. The complete pardon of past offenses combined with a life that is led by the Spirit leads to an impenetrable defense against the schemes of the enemy. All right, let's go to the next one. 
shoes. Verse, nine, verse 15, and as for shoes, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This, this is one of my favorites. I'm not going to lie. They're all my favorite, but this is a great one. The shoes. Why would you put on shoes, right? Of all this armor you got going, the helmet, the sword, the shield, breastplate. Ooh, put on shoes. I, I, I like this one because my kids don't like to wear shoes, right? And I've said this before. Um, I'm a shoe guy. I wear shoes around the house. There's very, I, I wear shoes to the pool sometimes, guys. Uh, because of this passage right here. Now, I, 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 I wear shoes because my feet get nicked up. I wear shoes because anytime I go on a, on, on a surface that isn't right, my feet hurt. But the shoes are here so that we might move. Some people say, well, the shoes are here so that we stand in place and we can have a firm foundation for standing in place. No, you don't put shoes on to stand in place. You put shoes on to move. When you climb a mountain, when you go over rocks, when you advance the gospel, you put the shoes of the gospel of peace on. Remember, the Lord is the one fighting for us. And when the Lord says, hey, we're taking this ground, I'm taking this ground, I want you to move forward, you're ready to move with the gospel of peace. Matthew 16, 18 says this, I will build my church, Jesus is declaring this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gate is stationary. And yet the church is moving through the gate of hell. They're going into enemy territory, armed with the gospel to rescue in people who were enemies of God and now considers them the family of God. Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And the reason why I, I say that the shoes are ready to move is from Isaiah 52, 7, most likely where Paul gets the shoes ready, fit for the gospel. He says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And what are these shoes ready for? The, the shoes are ready for the advancement of the gospel of peace. How can you have peace amidst war? The gospel brings peace. It brings hope to the hopeless. It brings peace to the, the restless. The good news that we no longer have to be enemies with God. We no longer have to be angry at this God who punishes unrighteousness and sin. The gospel brings reconciliation. The gospel brings restoration because our Lord gave up his life for you on the cross so that you could be right with God. The gospel not only brings peace with God, but it also brings peace to one another. Paul has said this already, talking about the peace the gospel brings in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about the, the church here, Jews and the Gentiles being one now. Christ has taken down this wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Church, the only way that we have unity is through Christ. He takes the walls of hostility down and he makes a new people, the people of God, which is the church. Verse 14, just one more thing before I move on. We are not white. We are not black. We are not Native American. We are not American first. We are the church, the people of God first. The people of God are defined by Christ himself. Now, I'm not taking any any of the sides. I'm not taking any away from the injustice, the oppression. I am saying, church, we should be united as the people of God. Verse 14, stand, therefore, having fasted on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as for shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So the next one is the shield of faith. When you think of the shield, don't think of a small, round, kind of like Captain America's shield. This is like a rectangular door that you stand behind. Large, tall, that you stand behind. The Old Testament, the Lord is the shield in which you get behind for protection. Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Often these shields in which you're taking refuge behind would be linked together to create this impenetrable wall. These, the, the picture here is the church locked arm in arm, creating these shields to which the, the enemy is trying to throw darts, and yet the person next to me is just as important as myself holding the shield up. Remember Satan's schemes in the garden? Trying to get man to doubt the character of the word, to doubt the character of God himself. And he throws these flaming missiles all day long. And the only answer is faith. Faith that God is who he says he is and that the word of God is true. And the only way that you can do those two things is that you're saturating your life in the word of God. Doubt, worry, fear, anxiety, all of these things creep up in our hearts and minds and we must rest in the refuge of Christ himself, God and the truth of his word himself. So Satan hurls at you, right? Like he hurls these thoughts at you all the time. You're not good. You're nothing. You're pathetic. After you did what you did, do you think God still loves you? You can't make a difference. He'll never use you. Your marriage will always be bad. You'll never be a good parent. You'll always be sick. You'll never get out of debt. All of these things he hurls at you all the time. 
And boom, you put up the shield. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Blessed is me when I come in and blessed is me when I go out. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He will never leave me nor forsake me. The eye is on the sparrow, and I know that he is watching me. Boom, shield. The truth of the word of God comes to life, and you have faith in the promises in which he puts forth in his word. When you begin to hear those messages in those darts, you put up the face. Numbers, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, protecting the mind and the head. This, this helmet is so important. He talks about this helmet in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In, in Thessalonians, he refers to this helmet as the assurance of someone's salvation. In Isaiah, we've already read this, but he don- the divine warrior dons the helmet of salvation. And God gives us this helmet to remind us that we are saved, not based upon our own works, but based upon his grace and the righteousness of Christ. You see, God loves you the same as he loves Christ. Why? Because we have put on Christ. Our faith is in Christ. We have died and now live in Christ. Therefore, I walk in the grace of God in my salvation. God could not love me more or he could not love me less. I walk in Christ. We put on the helmet of salvation that just because I fall down doesn't mean I've lost my salvation because my salvation is in Christ. And hopefully somebody else will pick me up next to me and say, come on, fight the battle and continue to fight, brother. Verse 17b says this. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word here is the spoken Word of God. Revelation 19, 15, Jesus shows this sword coming from his mouth. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. The Word of God is the primary offensive weapon. God, Jesus gives us this sword which strikes down nations. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he came back with the word of God, the living truth of the, of the word. Satan tries to twist the word. Sometimes we hear it and we, we get confused. And yet we need to know the word the Spirit of God indwelling amongst us so that we can push back the enemy which hurls the lies which you hear on a daily basis. It's also used to advance the kingdom of darkness. Hebrews 4.12 describes the Word of God as this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The Word of God pierces the hearts of man to be able to respond to the gospel of Christ. And when we go armed with the spirit of truth into enemy territory, into places where Christ is not known, guess what? Those nations in which rage against God and against Christ become 
sons and daughters of the King through the word of God and the spirit of God. It's not enough to know the Bible. We must apply the biblical truth to our lives. We must be doers of the word and not just hearers. Remember I said there's no equipment for the backside. Two reasons, I think. Number one, the gospel is advancing. We are moving forward. We are not moving backward. We are not turning and running. We are advancing forward in the spirit of the living God. The other reason is because church, we are to live in gospel-centered community. We are to live in a community of faith, of believers, in which they stand next to one another. They cover each other's backs. And when one falls down, we reach down and we pick them up and we hold the line together. Verse 18 says this, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is our third point this morning. Pray in the Spirit at all times. John Piper says this, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church, as it is to advance against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us a prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. End quote. Most likely, if you're not seeing the advancement of the kingdom of God in your own life, if you're not seeing the advancement of the kingdom of God in your, in your circles of influence, if you're not seeing the advancement of the kingdom of God in your community, then you're not praying. If you're not seeing the glory of God shining through your life and investing your life in discipleship relationships with others, you're not asking God to use you. And then he says, pray in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Praying in the spirit is that which allows you to pray the will of God. It allows you to pray what God's desire and what he wants. Romans 8:26 says this, likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, the Spirit is that which helps us to pray what God's desire and His will is for our life. The prayer Paul suggests here is not only for ourselves, but for others to keep all that alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You see, the advancement of the gospel does not happen outside of prayer. You want Northwest Baptist to reach people for Christ? We need to be people of prayer. You want your pastor to shepherd like Christ? Pray for him. 
You want to be a bold proclaimer of the gospel? You need to be on your knees asking for opportunities for the Lord to give you the words to speak to the people who need to hear the gospel of peace. My wife tells this story. I'm going to end with this. The story is about a night. We, we, you know, Navy SEALs and Army Rangers, they don't, they don't really put on this tin armor like they were doing with Roman soldiers. They do. It looks differently. But when we see this type of armor, we think of a medieval knight, right? You've all seen that picture. Put the shield down, the helmet's on, the sword, a full nine yards. This knight was tasked with guarding or watching the city. And every day he would wake up, he would go to his post with his armor on, ready to fend off any enemies that would come. He did this day after day after day after day. Pretty soon he realized there was, or he thought, the enemy was not there. And one day he woke up late, threw his breakfast bagel on his whatever his stove or his pot was at the time, carried it with him to his work, and he forgot to put his armor on. So he was in his PJs at his post, and guess what? He wasn't ready. He wasn't ready for the attack the enemy would bring. And instead of advancing against the enemy, guess what he did? He turned and he ran. That's not what God's design is for his people. His people are not to run from their problems, from their fears, their failures, their disappointments. God's people stand strong, armed with the gospel of grace, armed in Christ. And guess what? Underneath that tin six-pack, there may be some flab, right? And yet, God loves his church. God still loves his church. Even when we don't exactly represent him in the right and good ways, God loves his people. And he wants to use them for his purposes in advancing his glory and his righteousness. Exodus 15.3 says this, The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Psalm 18.39 says this, You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. Our God wants to advance the kingdom of God through the gospel of peace. Would we join him as people who repent of our own direction, the ways of the world, and put our faith and trust in the one who is worthy of our praise and glory, who is worthy to put on his armor, to put on Christ, to live a life that is pleasing to our God.